listeners, welcome to this episode of The Blue Radio. Today I will be talking to Dr. Callaghan. Dr. Callaghan has research focus on parental scaffolding of uh, childhood brain development and also the impact of childhood adversity on childhood amnesia. The other research focuses of Dr. Callaghan's lab are included in her website that if you're interested, I have included in the description of this episode. Let's dive in. Dr. Callaghan, please introduce yourself and tell us about your field. My name is Dr. Bridget Callaghan, and I'm an assistant professor of psychology at the University of California, Los Angeles. And there I direct the Brain and Body Lab, which is a research lab uh, where we study the effects of early life experiences on the development of the whole person. So we take a holistic approach where we look at outcomes in the brain, in the body, so looking at even the gastrointestinal system, the heart, lots of different parts of the body. And we also look at outcomes in terms of psychology. So how are people kind of coping with their mental as well as their physical health? And so because we look at early life experiences, one of the things that we look at are people who have had adverse early life experiences. This can look a range of different ways. So it could be you know, physical abuse and neglect or sexual abuse maladaptive family functioning. Um, but we also look at children who have, um, you know, they, they may not have experienced anything maybe that severe, but we look at still how the parent-child relationship shapes their development. Based on your research findings, how does child abuse affect brain development and further on manifest as character traits? What are some things you'd like our audience to know? Okay, thanks, Hilia. So I guess the first thing I'll say that I think is really important when starting conversations about early life adversity is that sometimes it can feel very deterministic when people talk about the consequences of early life adversity. There are lots of studies out there showing that people who've been exposed to early life adversity are at higher risk for a range of physical and mental health problems and that these last from childhood through to adulthood. But what I guess we don't talk about as much is that there is a huge degree of heterogeneity. That means individual differences or different responses to the experiences of early adversity. And so while one person might be very badly affected, you know, might be really struggling either in terms of their physical and or emotional health, others may not be as badly affected. So they might be more resilient in certain ways or at certain times in their life relative to other times in their life. So I always think that's a really important thing to say at the outset when we talk about these kind of studies looking at early life adversity or the consequences of early life adversity, uh, just to be sure that everyone knows that it doesn't mean that this is going to be you or this is your fate. Um, so what do we know about early life adversity? We know quite a lot. So in general, you know, not to sugarcoat things at all, we know that it's very tough to have been raised under adverse conditions. To have a parent who is abusive or neglectful and this can tend to impact your brain development. So um, some of the patterns that we see following early life adversity tend to be related to um, emotion systems 
So particularly if people are going to be affected, sometimes what we see is that the emotion response system tends to be kind of threat oriented. So people tend to be focused on uh, threatening situations. They might misinterpret threatening situations. And certainly the brain circuitry that underlies interpreting threat and responding to threat and, and lowering or dampening threat, this can uh, be affected by adverse early experiences. So one of the circuits we've looked at in the past is the amygdala as well as the prefrontal cortex. So the amygdala is a brain region that's really responsive to detecting and learning about threats, as well as a range of different emotions. And the prefrontal cortex is a region that kind of inhibits reactivity in the amygdala. Uh, and so we see differences sometimes in this circuit um, in children who've experienced really severe forms of early life adversity, like being raised in an institution and then adopted into American families. So for example, if someone is walking past you in the hallway and they bump into you and they don't say anything, there are a range of ways that you could interpret that behavior. So one way is you could say, oh, they must be having a really bad day. Oh, well, I'll catch up with them later. Whereas another response you could have is like, oh my God, they must hate me. Like I must've done something really wrong. And so one of those responses is more of a reappraisal or a reevaluation, which might be more adaptive. And the other one is very person focused and uh, guilty and blaming. Um, so that's one of the ways that we see these um, types of biases playing out. Dr. Callaghan also told me that some parts of the brain tend to reach maturity faster in those who experience child abuse. Let's hear her explanation. So another thing um, that we've seen a little bit of is that in certain brain regions, on certain neural circuits, um, there does seem to be a slightly early development in children who've been exposed to early life adversity. And so what that might look like is that you know, for a, for a response system like the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, for that to respond in an adult-like way, what we would typically expect to see is that the, the amygdala might respond to threat and then the prefrontal cortex helps to inhibit what the amygdala is doing. And that would be good emotion regulation or that might be associated with good emotion regulation. And that's kind of a, a mature response. What we have seen in um, a variety of different studies of children with early life adversity is that sometimes those systems mature a little bit faster and we might begin to see these more adolescent or adult-like neural phenotypes in the children. And so what does that mean? Well, a lot of people who have had experience with adversity do talk about this early maturation. So feeling like you need to grow up early and do things by yourself and look after yourself. And so that's another thing that we see somewhat frequently in people who have been exposed to really severe forms of early life adversity. You said that the response to a certain event, such as uh, someone bumping to us randomly and not saying anything afterwards, is different in the adaptive case and the maladaptive case that is what some survivors are likely to show. So. As these maladaptive responses would make a life and socializing somehow difficult, how do you think survivors can change their responses to become more adaptive to help themselves? 
That's actually a really important nuance or question that is often overlooked in the literature. And so typically what we are trying to do is to describe a behavior or a neural phenotype or whatever it is. And we try to not place a value label on it. So we're trying not to say this is maladaptive or bad, because of course, as you just pointed out, Hilia, it depends on the context. So someone who's very responsive to threat, who can read threat in people's faces really well, you know, that might be adaptive in certain contexts. So if you have an abusive parent, for example, and you need to know when they're in a bad mood and you need to get out of the way, then that may actually be a very adaptive response. But what we typically see is that people tend to hopefully get out of those situations and then they're systems, I suppose, are not exactly well adapted to the places that they find themselves in later in life. And so it's when people's responses become somewhat maladaptive that, that people begin to get concerned and, and to have real difficulties in life. So what can they do about it? That's um, a really <laughs> critical question that um, scientists are still really struggling with and, and trying to work with. I certainly think that there, you know, not think, I know there are a lot of really uh, good treatments out there for people who are struggling with mental health issues, particularly after adversity. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and particularly trauma-focused CBT seem to be particularly useful for people uh, to at least try. And certainly support groups and, and speaking with others about their experiences um, has been shown to be very helpful for people. And so I guess my recommendation would be to, to get professional help. So if you're really struggling with your mental health or your physical health after um, experiencing adverse events in early life, then it would be the time to, to speak to a professional about it because there are treatments out there that can help. When child abuse survivors grow into adults, if they make the choice of becoming a parent, how is it like for them as parents? And how is it like for their children? So for example, if a mom is exposed to abuse when she's a child, then it's possible that her own child, when she grows up and, and has one, if that's the path that she decides to take, may be exposed to levels of adversity that are higher than the general population. That doesn't necessarily mean that's because that mom is abusing that child. It can be from a variety of different for a variety of different reasons. For example, you know, being the mum finding that she's in the same kind of dangerous situations as she was when she was a child. And also we know that the experience of parenthood, of course, brings up a lot of really um, challenging issues about personhood and identity. Um, and these could be really tough for people to deal with um, at the best of times, but particularly when you've been struggling with your identity after having experienced some really adverse events. Um, but again, you know, not deterministic. We know that lots of, you know, the vast majority of, of parents who've experienced adversity is going to be fantastic parents and everyone has the ability to do that. So again, I would suggest similar things. Like if you have been exposed to adversity and you're thinking about parenthood, then that's great. And I would think about, you know, as everyone needs to, what is it, what's the personal work that you need to do to, um, to kind of overcome your adverse experiences and, and be the sort of parent that you would like to be for your child. And so again, seeking professional help in that domain if you need it is, is really important. 
If the abuser was a parent, what do you think about the contact or relationship between the survivor and perpetrator after abuse and while the individual, the survivor, becomes independent? It's a really great question and it's very individual because, of course, as we know, the experiences of, ab of abuse and neglect are very, very unique. So each person has a very different story. And how they respond with and deal with, um, with their abuser afterwards is also a very independent journey. So it's the thing that I would say is to do whatever it is that is the best thing for you to do. And actually only you know, <laughs> only you know what the best thing for you to do is. So you've got to protect yourself, certainly protect your safety, number one, but also to, to think about your your responses here so is it more distressing to not have this person in your life so once you once you're safe um you know and, and the, the abuse is no longer happening maybe it's more distressing to not have them in your life in which case you do want to include them in your life going forward or perhaps that's not true perhaps it's much more distressing to to have them in your life and so you want to kind of cut them out completely and the important thing is that both of those responses or any responses are fine as long as Number one, your safety is being looked after. And number two, you're doing what you want to do. My next question is about another area you're working on, childhood amnesia. I've talked to some survivors who have said that they did not remember anything from long periods of time in which they were being abused. As abuse is repetitive and learning neurologically relies on repetition, so what happens to these memories? So I have studied for a long time this phenomenon of infantile or childhood amnesia. And actually, before I started doing research with human populations, I did a lot of research in rats. And so most of what we know about childhood amnesia and the consequences of it for um, in context of early life adversity, we know in animal models, in rat models in particular. So childhood amnesia is a very common phenomenon. It occurs in humans, it occurs in rats, and, and basically all mammalian species. And basically it just refers to the fact that we can't really remember what happens to us very well before about three years of age. So, you know, the first three years of age as an adult are very hard to remember, if at all. And then memories up until about 10 years of age can be quite sparse or spotty. So people only have a few memories from around that period of time. And it's only after kind of we reach into adolescence and young adulthood that we tend to retain memories for longer periods of time. So the first thing to note is that that's, that's normal. That's a common phenomenon. That's what the brain should be doing. And there are many different reasons why memories from early life are hard to access, including things like the maturity of the brain and language skills at that particular time. What we found in rats or in animal models is that being exposed to early life adversity sometimes changes the memory system. And so, in fact, what we find is that memories of traumatic events actually tend to stick around for a little bit longer in rats than what we would typically see. So it's almost like exposure to adversity in rats seems to lead to an early termination of infantile amnesia and an early transition into these longer lasting or more adult-like memories. But of course, as you've pointed out, Hilia, the story is much more complicated than that in humans. 
because one of the things that we see in humans is certainly that um, you know memories can be accessed from earlier in life but we also see that people who've experienced abuse or trauma and neglect they may also have different effects on their memory system so for example it might be harder for them to remember specifics or to remember you know big chunks of time in their life and this is a very common phenomena with trauma so the way that the memory system is tied into trauma is very complicated and um, it really depends on a range of different circumstances like the age you were when the abuse happened um, what sort of abuse occurred and, and that sort of thing. So it's important to note that memory is intimately tied to our experiences of trauma, but there's not exactly um, clear pathways as to how it's involved. Can these memories resurface? I have read about therapies that help recollect memories from particular times. Can that be helpful? It's actually a really, um, it's a really nuanced and complicated question. So in general, the idea that you would have a memory from early in life or from any stage in life and have completely forgotten it, and then only through therapy you retrieve it, that is probably unlikely to happen, at least frequently. So there's lots of evidence on these kind of retrieval of lost memories that suggests that that's probably not really what's going on. And there's lots of evidence that shows that when questions are asked in a particular way, memories can either be inserted, so a false memory can be inserted, or a memory can be changed in content. So a really good example of this, I'll probably get the details of this study wrong, but in a lab, people watched a car accident happened and then um, they had to make ratings about things like whether there was glass on the ground after the car accident happened. So basically relying on their memories to retrieve details of this event. And so when questions were asked in a leading way, so for example, if the researcher said, what happens when, what happened when the car smashed into the other car? So the word smash sounds like there was probably some glass involved. People are more likely to remember that there was glass on the ground, even though there wasn't in the actual movie. Whereas if they use a term like bumped, people might be less likely to remember that. So this is just to say that there are, you know, our memories are not infallible. Our memories are very fallible and we can take information from our environment and update and change our memories. So they're not perfect readouts of the past. With PTSD, well, the, the sorts of memory effects that we generally seem to see is that someone might know that they have been through a traumatic episode. So they know that they were sexually abused and they have some fairly good memories about the incident. So for example, they might remember details about the house where it happened, what they were doing that day. And then they might have a bit of a black hole for the actual experience itself. And then their memory might pick up afterwards. So then they remember leaving the house and what they did for the rest of the day. And so in PTSD therapy, one of the things that is done is to try and help people access the details of the parts of the memory that they have forgotten and then work through the details of those memory to kind of store them away in the brain 
so that we don't need to keep kind of pulling them out and, and experiencing them. And that's one of the symptoms of PTSD is this re-experiencing. So even though, you know, you might be suppressing parts, you know, the most traumatic parts of the memory, they sometimes come back without you inviting them to come back. And so through this therapy of, of accessing that memory in more detail, there's parts of the memory that you seem to be suppressing, then that can be helpful for your, um, you know, for you moving forward. Um, so that's one thing where it would be helpful for you to access the details of the memory, but that's in the context of you knowing that you had experienced this event and, and having a memory there. It's just the different parts of the memory are, are remembered in different detail. An alternative situation is where one day, you know, through therapy, I feel totally fine and I'm not remotely squeamish about, you know, whatever it is, physical touch or, or whatever, but I somehow recover a memory of a past event where I was sexually abused. So that's, that's different. So firstly, the evidence suggests that that's fairly unlikely to happen for you to have absolutely no memory at all and then to recover it in adulthood. And then secondly, the situation with that is that you were not experiencing adverse effects of it. So you seem to be going fine in life and then you're kind of what I would say getting this generated memory. And there's evidence to suggest that that's, that's not going to be helpful, potentially because it's not, it didn't happen. So those are, there are real differences there. So there's, you know, forgetting an entire memory or forgetting parts of the memory of the details of the memory. And so the evidence suggests that it's very unlikely for people to have forgotten completely events in their life. As we're approaching the end, what would you like to add as in regards to experiencing or not experiencing or even initiating child abuse? There's a broad audience, including child abuse victims, survivors, interested individuals, and those who might have knowingly or unknowingly done damage to someone else. Firstly, to speak to survivors, um, you know, I think the really important thing to note with, um, with being a survivor is, again, that, you know, it's not deterministic and that you have many options in your life, even sometimes when it feels like some of the doors are closed to you and it feels like you're going to be struggling or dealing with this forever. And there are lots of supports and, and help that you can access. And so I really encourage people to take advantage of those if they are struggling. So to recognize that you're struggling and, and to really uh, step into some of those uh, helpful treatments or supports. Uh, for perpetrators, you know, if you are someone who you, I guess you feel that you are being a perpetrator of abuse or neglect or violence towards another person, you know, that's an issue. That's a really significant problem. And likewise, there are treatments and ways that you can access support to prevent you from doing that. Again, it's not deterministic and you have choices and there are ways that you can prevent yourself from engaging in those behaviors. So I would encourage potential perpetrators, people who think they might be perpetrators or people who know that they are a perpetrator to go and get the help that they need. I learned a lot from my talk with Dr. Callaghan. 
There are a lot of myths and incorrect information surrounding the impact of childhood abuse on the later development of a person. These myths and wrong information unfortunately lead to a lot of labeling. So as a result of that, childhood abuse survivors are not very comfortable sharing their experiences and they don't benefit from the help that they can get sharing these experiences and talking about it. Also, there's a lot of confusion about memories and memory retrieval and the therapies that are associated with it that Dr. Callaghan explained. With that, I will end this episode. Thank you for listening.